When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Everyone looks to Singapore as a role model for what they want their country to be. Several countries from China to Rwanda hope to emulate its high administrative competence, standard of living, and quote-unquote social harmony. Post-Brexit Britain wants to copy the city-state's assertive and independent position in the world economy and its aggressive support for international business. Housing policy advocates look to Singapore's 90% home ownership rate in devising their own policies. And as I can tell you, as someone in Hong Kong, there are few things that people here of all persuasions like to do more than to compare themselves to Singapore. But these are all simplistic views of the city-state that miss its history, its opportunities, and its challenges. Jeevan Vazahar's Lion City, Singapore and the Invention of Modern Asia, published by Little Brown earlier this year, delves into these more complicated details, giving a better portrayal of the city and the choices it's made as it tries to navigate a more complicated global environment. Jeevan is the environment editor for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and was formerly the Financial Times correspondent for Singapore and Malaysia. Today, Jeevan and I will talk about, well, Singapore its history, its leadership, and its policies. We'll talk about how its administration is trying to chart a future for the country and whether that might be successful. So, Jeevan, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's start with perhaps a very straightforward question. What makes Singapore interesting as a place to examine in the way you do in your book? Hi, Nicholas. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, the beginning of my interest in Singapore was um, really with, uh, or the beginning of my interest in writing a book about Singapore was with the the Brexit moment in the UK, um, and actually sort of in the run up to Brexit, when Singapore was being described as uh, a role model uh, for the UK after leaving the European Union, um, and I thought it was interesting how Singapore was consistently seen as this free market paradise. Uh, when I knew that it, it wasn't that, I knew the reality was quite different, um, and I understood the extent of state intervention in Singapore. Uh, what, what I also thought was interesting about this was that you had a sort of knee-jerk response uh, from critics, um, particularly on the left, saying that uh, Singapore is authoritarian, and from many people saying, well, Singapore is very, very boring, 
uh, there's nothing there's nothing of interest about it. Um, and I thought all of these um, views of Singapore were inaccurate. They were all wrong. Uh, none of them really understood the sort of complex and messy reality of the place. And I thought there was something to be written about what Singapore actually is, the extent to which it could be a role model for other countries, um, and why it wasn't particularly a role model for Britain. So, so perhaps let's start with uh, when going through Singapore's history. We're talking about the man who founded it, um, Raffles. Uh, could what was Raffles' goal in establishing Singapore, and how has his influence and his idea for the place? Uh, continue to affect Singapore today? So there's obviously a long history of Singapore um, as a trading settlement, um, as a point where uh, fishermen and merchants uh, from across the region uh, congregated before the British arrived and before there was European settlement and colonization in Asia. Um, But I take as a sort of key starting point, really, for Singapore's modern history, um, uh, the founding of the modern settlement by, by Raffles. Uh, and he was an unusual um, figure in terms of his his outlook. So absolutely kind of committed to free trade, um, had this liberal view of empire as sort of civilizational force, um, obviously one that um, we can make sort of pretty trenchant criticisms of, um, but one that um, was uh, significant and had a great significance for the way that Lee Kuan Yew saw um, uh, Singapore's colonial history. And he Raffles saw Singapore as a key sort of staging point for British influence, um, a way to extend British influence um, east of India and create this uh, staging post between India and China. And at the time, the key European rivalry was between the British and the Dutch. And he saw it as a way to um, uh, to get one up on the Dutch, essentially, and uh, establish British influence in a region where um, it had very, very limited sway. So Singapore you know, is a British colony, it's developed by the British, um, and then comes independence, and you have this very, you you can call it an an awkward transition period, where Singapore um, tries to join with with, with Malaysia in a larger federation, that doesn't work out, they have a divorce a few years later. Um, How was the relationship with first Malaya, and then later Malaysia, affect how Singapore sees itself? I'd say there's a complex relationship um, between Malaya and Singapore. And the two countries are, are really like cousins, but um, it's a very strong kind of familial relationship. So you have the same uh, ethnic communities in both countries, uh, Chinese, Malay, Tamil, uh, different, um, uh, slightly different majorities, obviously, in both. So a, clearly a Malay majority in present-day Malaysia, a Chinese majority in present-day Singapore. Um, but if you go back in time... Um, you know these these weren't sort of really separate identities. It was it was one Malaya, um, a syncretistic culture, one in which people were sharing food, um, speaking each other's languages, um, had some history of intermarriage. Um, when you look at the sort of political construction of modern Malaysia, modern Singapore, um, there's obviously a really um, contrasting um, idea of what the nations um, exist for. Um, and Lee Kuan Yew's idea of uh, Malaysia, um, as I understand it, um, was one that um, was uh, had a greater degree degree of ethnic plurality, uh, and one that was founded on a somewhat different idea from the um, much more sort of racially identified conception that has taken hold in Malaysia. Um, this is obviously a very controversial point, but my argument is that. Um, present-day Malaysia is really constructed pretty strongly along the lines of um, uh, 
ethnic Malay privilege, you might argue, and one in which um, uh, uh, ethnic Malays are guaranteed certain rights um, above other communities. Um, Lee Kuan Yew's vision of Singapore is somewhat different from that. From that. Now, we can talk about how um, uh, Singapore has worked out in practice, but um, that vision of Singapore, um, of one that's based on uh, ethnic plurality of, um, of greater meritocracy, is quite different from that sort of very racial view of Malaysia. So there's a really fundamentally different way of seeing the two societies. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned Lee Kuan Yew, and it really is impossible to talk about Singapore without talking about about Lee Kuan Yew, how did his his views, his ideology, and his personality affect Singapore's development after independence? So um, he's obviously an enormous um, kind of historical figure for Singapore uh, and for Asia. And I think one of the things um, that is really striking about him, if you look at his, his personality and his background, is in a way how... Um, how how out of his society he is. So he's someone who um, had a very kind of English, very colonial upbringing, went to an elite school, uh, the Raffles Institution, um, then went on to study at Cambridge, studied red law at Cambridge, um, uh, learned to speak Chinese later in life. Um, when, and there's a sort of revealing details um, in his own biographical writing. So when he talks about going out campaigning uh, in some of the poorer parts of town in Singapore, um, he sort of describes sort of feeling sort of disgusted by open sewers, seeing rats running around, uh, having to come back home and have a bath afterwards to sort of clean himself properly. Um, not someone who was, you know, fully sort of, you know, um, in, in a way, not someone who's sort of fully within the sort of Chinese society of Singapore, not someone who kind of fully understood it, fully understood its stories, its traditions, someone who was you know, very, very strongly sort of shaped by the colonial influence. Um, and I think you can see the imprint of that in a great deal in modern Singapore. So it's a, it's a society that's sort of between two worlds, um, between East and West. And that's a legacy of, of this man who kind of effectively created it and has that has that split between uh, uh, between Asia and Europe. So I'd like to transition now from the history of Singapore to kind of how this city state is constructed today. Um, Singapore is often presented as a free market society, both by its own government and also by uh, outside admirers. Um, yet the government builds public housing. I think it helps control drug prices. It conducts other social interventions. How does one kind of understand this apparent contradiction between this idea of Singapore as a small, open, free market economy, yet also one that does a lot of these social interventions? So the state in Singapore plays an absolutely central role in the economy. Um, it's very much the government that says um, we're setting out to uh, encourage um, particular sectors. Um, we're setting out to say what kind of economy we want to have. Um, you know, we'd like to hold manufacturing um, at, at a certain level. Um, we'd like to uh, encourage the growth uh, of Singapore as a financial centre. Um, so it has a clear vision for how it wants the economy to develop. Um, at the same time, there is a pretty robust welfare state, as you've pointed out. So um, certainly in areas like housing, you know, the majority of the population living in public housing, um, free um, uh, universal education. Um, I guess the, the connection between these two parts, uh, these two apparent contradictions is to say that um, there's a very, very clear sense um, in Singapore of how um, society should look. 
um, and that's driven from the top down. Um, and certainly um, Lee Kuan Yew and um, Singapore's elite did believe in markets and uh, saw um, the market economy and saw capitalism as something they were part of. Um, and this was the way for this for society to prosper. Um, but they also saw a very, very clear role for government uh, in providing um, a strong but narrow welfare state that was designed to create um, educated and productive workers that would fit into this economy. Um, so that the two sort of really go together. It's, it's, a, it's a very different model, I would say, from the sort of liberal um, Anglo-Saxon model um, that, that Britain uh, and, and the US um, follow or Britain and the US sort of talk about. Um, but it's, it's a, a very familiar model in other parts of the world. So it's much more Germanic, much more similar to, to the Japanese social model. Um, but Singapore, I think, has also been very successful in attracting international companies to uh, be based in Singapore whether in manufacturing and services, I think more recently um, in tech, I know Singapore is very proud of its record in attracting startups and venture capital and all that stuff. Um, but I guess, why has Singapore been so successful? Is it just the characteristics that it has as an open economy or has there been actual government effort and government policy in attracting these companies? So there's certainly very active um, government wooing of these companies uh, in desirable sectors, um, and that um, takes a number of forms. So there are, there are tax breaks um, for companies that come and set up in Singapore, um, and the government goes out to um, you know to regularly sort of you know, pursue these companies and invite them to come and come and set up um, uh, in the country. Um, Singapore is also a very, very appealing place to set up um, if you're a, a foreign business seeking an entry point into Asia. Um, the bureaucracy is very efficient, very minimal. It's very straightforward to set yourself up there. Um, there's a highly educated um, white collar workforce. Um, and there's also, if you're a manufacturer, um, a significant kind of low paid migrant workforce. So the, the costs uh, aren't necessarily that high of doing business in Singapore. Um, and it's also kind of obviously strategically located. So it's in Southeast Asia um, with a booming middle class. Um, it's the perfect place to set up if you're um, looking to tap into that. Maybe let's kind of move on now to kind of the, some of the other beyond economics, some of the more kind of social um, aspects of Singapore. Um, you know, the government has made trying to achieve, you know, quote unquote, racial harmony and active policy. Uh, it does this through things like its housing policy, where it tries to build diverse public housing estates. Um, but in practice, and in your view, how successful has Singapore been in kind of developing a multicultural, multi-ethnic society um, that, that does not see these tensions? That's a really um, interesting question. Um, I would say that um, there is a clear sense of Singaporean identity um, and that's partly something that's formed naturally and partly something that's sort of shaped by the government. So as you've mentioned, Nicholas, there is this policy um, of, in, of ensuring there are uh, there's an ethnic mix um, in every neighborhood um, and in every housing block. Um, and that means that schools are mixed. There's a high level of interaction amongst neighbors um, and that people get to know each other, share each other's food, um, understand bits of each other's languages. Uh, there's a sense that you know, being Singaporean is this mixed kind of blended identity um, that's different from its neighbors. And, you know, if you're a Chinese Singaporean, you're not Chinese. If you're an Indian Singaporean, you're not Indian. You're, you, you have your own identity. Um, at the same time, um, there are uh, distinct issues around race. I think that Singapore hasn't really settled yet. 
um, there is a sense that um, the Chinese ethnicity is the dominant ethnicity in Singapore. Um, the um, a sense that uh, a non-Chinese person would be very difficult for a non-Chinese person to advance to the very top of Singaporean society to become the prime minister. I think would be uh, is still sort of clearly something that uh, is seen as problematic. Um, and I think there is a clear sense that um, if you're a Singaporean Malay, um, you're disadvantaged in various ways. Um, uh, you'll earn less um, than um, uh, other um, ethnic communities um, and it'll be di more difficult for you to advance, um, particularly in the military, uh, where there's historically been um, distrust uh, of Singaporean Malays and sort of concern about uh, putting Singaporean Malays into sensitive positions um, because Malaysia and Indonesia um, have been the sort of traditional uh, historical sort of uh, rivals in the region of Singapore. So to take a bigger picture view again, um, there's a proposed relationship between economic development and political openness. Um, either development leads to political to greater openness or openness helps lead to growth or whatever, however that relationship happens. But Singapore seems to be kind of awkwardly placed in this conversation. Um, Singapore uh, has in the past um, taken quite, uh, has been quite constraining of opposition politicians. It's arrested them in the past, in the 60s and the 80s. Um, obviously its media scene is more, uh, also somewhat more constrained than um than other places yet of course it's still a thriving business center um it's still a thriving uh open economy it's a thriving society um so i guess in talking about this again entirely theoretical trade-off between our trade-off theoretical relationship between openness and development where does singapore fit into this conversation I'd say you can see a number of societies around Asia um, which have made um, similar trade-offs um, between um, openness, political openness and um, economic progress. So if you look at um, Taiwan and Korea, they've both gone through relatively authoritarian phases when their economies were developing um, and have transitioned into, into more democratic societies um, as their middle classes have grown, as more people have gone to universities, as more people have, gone, have joined trade unions and, and really demanded their rights. Um, Singapore hasn't quite gone through the same trajectory. Um, and I think that um, there are sort of two interesting aspects of this. Um, one is that um, there's been a very clear um, return to the Singaporean population in terms of um, economic prosperity um, from early on. And that's um, they've really seen their lifestyles improve dramatically um, and they've accepted limits to political freedom um, as a sort of compact. Um, the other point that I'd like to make is that um, while Singapore has been repressive in the past, um, it's never really been um, uh, used sort of deadly force on its citizens to the same extent that you've seen in other countries. Um, I talked to a, in, in my book, I spoke to a dissident um, who was arrested and um, mistreated um, in Singapore, but said one reassuring thing um, was that he knew that um, he wouldn't be killed. He knew that that didn't happen in Singapore, that sort of extrajudicial, arbitrary um, use of uh, extreme state violence that you do see in other countries. Um, I, I do think that Singapore is likely to go through um, a similar kind of transition to the one that we've seen in other countries. Um, I think it may well be slower and more gradual, um, but I think it will come nonetheless. So Singapore, I think, has been very successful at implementing its public objectives, uh, you know, again, in, in, in attracting manufacturing, in attracting um, international business, in attracting tech, 
in kind of building up um, in building up uh, its own defense uh, in a complicated environment. Um, and it, it basically succeeds in most of its objectives with one, I would say, pretty significant exception, which is uh, becoming an international financial center. They're constantly trying to make their stock market, um, you know, be of international quality. It never quite get there. I think today they just announced um, a fund to really kind of bolster the stock market even more. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is, uh, is Singapore doesn't necessarily have some of the uh, geographical infrastructural advantages that other financial centers do being very close to major economies like New York, London, and Hong Kong are, um, doesn't have the same maybe depth of infrastructure. And so the reason I ask this or, or bring this up is to ask, is Singapore's success due really due to this ability from its administration to really chart its own path in the global environment? Or is it perhaps more just intelligently, capitalizing on advantages it already has and using them to its fullest extent. But where they don't exist, it struggles like everyone else does. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Nicholas. Um, I would say that um, you're right that Singapore's made sort of brilliant use of some of its natural advantages and, and really built on those. And, and a good case in point, I would say, is the petrochemical, petrochemical industry. I mean, obviously, Singapore has no... Um, uh, oil reserves of its own, um, but it's become um, a, a regional center for um, uh, for oil storage, uh, for petrochemicals, um, and that's on the basis of its sort of maritime location. So it's it's, it's perfectly located for, for shipping. Um, when it comes to uh, finance and, and its role as a financial center, um, I'd say there are some areas where it has been very successful. So it's developed very successfully um, a wealth management uh, mm. center. So lots of lots of wealth managers in Singapore. Um, and venture capital, and that, of course, too. Yeah. And VC and, and other sectors like insurance. Um, the stock market um, is an interesting case because I think that relates to um, the fact that Southeast Asia is so fragmented as a region. Um, so it obviously, um, you know, it's not like um, Singapore is not like directly equivalent to Hong Kong in the sense where Hong Kong can be the gateway between uh, China and the West mm. uh, for sort of flows of capital in both directions. Um Singapore is part of a much more fragmented region, much more politically fra fragmented region. Um, other countries in the region may turn a blind eye to some of um, their citizens' wealth um, uh, being stored in Singapore. Uh, they're much more reluctant uh, to see their companies listing on the Singapore Stock Exchange. Um, clearly, if the government is a sort of you know big holder of uh, investments or national governments are big holders of investments in those companies, they're much more reluctant to see those um, going to Singapore rather than being listed uh, in Kuala Lumpur or in, in Bangkok. Um, so I think, you know, it may never overcome some of those disadvantages, the disadvantage of being part of this, uh, this small and uh, disparate region. Um, but it, you know, it does, uh, it does a terrific job at um, uh, making use of the advantages that it has. So I'd like to end um, with a with a personal question, if I might. Um, and that's to ask about your own feelings about Singapore. I think you obviously were based there for work. Um, I believe you have a personal family connection to the place. Your your father is from there, if I'm if I'm correct. That's right. Yes. So 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 I guess what are your own feelings about Singapore as someone with a personal connection to to the city? Yes. So just to explain a bit of my personal background, um, my father was born in Sri Lanka, but he uh, migrated to Singapore when he was a boy and grew up there. Um, and I have a half sister who's Singaporean, uh, so some Singaporean family. 
um, I've always had a sort of strong connection to the place. We traveled back and forth regularly as children. So I knew Singapore food very well. Um, I admired it. Um, one of my earliest childhood memories um, is um, flying from um, uh, Heathrow, arriving at Changi Airport um, and seeing that um, there was Tamil script in the LCD display at, uh, at Changi. Um, and I, I, the reason I mention that is because um, for me, it was striking to see that um, Singapore could be an Asian edition of the modern world, that it was, um, you know, an advanced, developed society, but nonetheless one that was in touch with um, its traditional cultures. And that was that was really, really striking to me. Um, I have um, um, a somewhat awkward relationship with it because um, as much as I admire Singapore, as much as I think it's uh, uh, an efficient and comfortable society, um, I am irked by um, the fact that uh, its citizens... Um, so frequently censor themselves in conversation, uh, the fact that there's um, so little political freedom. Um, and I'm used to the kind of um, open discussion that you can have in so many other societies, particularly in the West and uh, and in other Asian, Asian societies and find it odd in Singapore that people are so reluctant uh, to criticize the government, people are so reluctant to sort of speak freely about political topics. I understand for historical reasons, because there has been this uh, strong political control, um, why people should feel reluctant to do that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't find it a particularly comfortable place to live for that reason. Um, you know, there is a sort of feeling sometimes of being a sort of bird in a gilded cage. Um, you know, your, your surroundings are uh, very, very pleasant, but um, don't cross the don't cross the boundaries that everyone's aware of. Um, so, you know, I, I both admire it, but um, I'm unsure whether I'd uh, ever choose to live there, um, you know, if they'd have me after I've said all this in public. So with that, I think that ends our interview with uh, Jeevan Vazahar, author of Lion City, Singapore and the Invention of Modern Asia. Jeevan, I actually do have one more question for you, um, which is, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? So my book is available um, uh, online uh, on Amazon and um, other uh, internet booksellers and also in Kino Kinuya in, in Singapore and in Kuala Lumpur and uh, obviously bookstores um, in the UK. Um, so what's next? Um, I'm currently working um, as environment editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, as you mentioned. Um, our focus is on uh, emissions from industrial farming, um, and I'll be looking to um, expand our reporting through uh, COP26 and across the next year and the coming years, which is so critical for our engagement with climate change. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Timon Screech, author of The Shogun's Silver Telescope, God, Art, and Money in the English Quest for Japan, 625. But before then, thank you so much, Jeevan, for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas.